Hi, I'm Clea Levin, and welcome to this Slate Plus episode for the season of One Year, 1986. Today, I'm going to be chatting with host Josh Levine and senior producer Evan Chung. Hi, you two. Hi, Cleo. Hey, Cleo. Good to see you. Thrilled to have you guys here. This was a really fun and emotionally powerful season. Obviously, every season of One Year starts with picking a year. Can you talk about why you picked 1986? I love symmetry, and we had done 77 and 95, so I wanted one that was exactly (laughs) in between them. I think all of our listeners were hoping for that, but the 80s are a really fascinating time in American history, and within living memory for me, so that was fun as well. But, you know, we want individual episodes that can stand on their own as stories that are just narratives that people will want to listen to from beginning to end. But the cool thing about this season and about the mid-80s is that there are these really kind of enormous thematic things happening in America when you think about, like we did in the first episode with the crack epidemic and the rise in, in murder rates in American cities. We got into the issue of homelessness in our our final episode. So it felt like we were able to do a season that if you listen to it from beginning to end, you could get a kind of feel of what it was like to live in America in that moment, but also get at those themes in a bunch of really unexpected and surprising ways. Yeah, I think that's all right. I will also add, uh, you know, one crucial thing about 1986 that makes it such a pivotal year is it is, of course, the year of my birth. So very figured very large into our decision making that Somehow we didn't get around to making the episode about my birth. I'm not sure why. We ran out of time, I guess. The Unheard Episode 8. And um, listeners will know that music plays a really big part in the show, and Evan is the guy behind that. And you were really excited to play around with the sounds of 1986, right, Evan? Yeah, I do. I mean, it is a, it is a great era of music that has somehow recently come back into vogue, that aesthetic, thanks to... Stranger Things and many other things, that mid-80s synth-heavy feeling is is alive and well. Yeah. So the first episode of this season was No Crime Day. You don't really start the episode with a thesis or explain how the listener should be interpreting the events. Can you talk about how you decided to script this episode and how you introduced the people who are victims of crime on this day? Yeah, it's something that we talked about a lot in terms of both tone and structure, the way that we were going to present this information. There's certainly a chronological element to it where the episode basically says what happened before the day, what happened on the day, and what after the day. So that's, you know, fairly straightforward. But, you know, tone is really important in these episodes, you know, especially with these really sad stories of people who uh, were killed on No Crime Day. There's a certain kind of relentlessness to it that I think can be hard as a listener. And so we wanted to think about how to present that in such a way that was true, authentic, that gave voice to these, you know, the survivors of people that were victims, while also, you know, having an episode that people would feel interested and motivated to want to listen to from beginning to end. So that was, yeah, that was something that we talked about a lot. And in terms of 
presenting a thesis about No Crime Day. I had really good conversations, both with Isaiah Thomas and with Georgiela Muirhead, who was the city's public information director. And we sort of allowed those conversations to run as sort of Q&As in the final segment, especially my conversation with Georgiela, where we had a little bit of back and forth about, was this a good idea? Was the way that it was presented, you know, were you setting yourselves up to fail? And she had really strong answers. And so I'm kind of the proxy for the listener, like where I'm asking the questions that listeners are asking, and she's providing pretty good answers. And so that was a, a lot of the approach that we took rather than me being kind of prescriptive and telling people this is what you should think about this, uh, this moment. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, so the second episode of the season also deals with the trauma of the subjects. Evan, you hosted this episode, and it was for the most part non-narrated, meaning that your voice stopped coming in after the intro, and you just heard the voices of the teachers you interviewed. Why did you decide to do the episode this way? Yeah, so this is the episode about the Challenger disaster in January of 86, which is definitely the biggest news event of the year. And... We knew it was so big we couldn't ignore it because it, it just sort of shows up in every story you cover. Someone talks about the Challenger, um, and it just had such a huge impact on so many people who were watching that day. The tricky thing, though, was because it's so big, such a big story, how do we tell that story in a way that people haven't already heard? And how do we tell that story in a single episode? It's, it's impossible to be comprehensive about what happened with the Challenger. And if you want to see, seek more information about it, there are documentaries and TV series and many books that have already covered this ground in a way that we didn't have to. So I try to look for some other version of the story that maybe hasn't been told as much. And every time I sort of read a history of the Challenger, I came across the passage about the teacher in space program, which typically, you know, had a couple paragraphs, a few pages maybe. And then it just sort of moves on to say there was a contest. Krista McAuliffe was selected, and then it moves on from there. But it made me kind of stop and think and wonder, well, what is that story? What is that, you know, one paragraph? How does that expand? What were those people's lives like, the other ones who didn't get chosen, and how do they feel about it now? And so I was able to find some of those teachers who were the runners-up for the slot to be on the Challenger. And it just sort of made sense then to do the episode as much as possible just from their perspective. In one sense... It was, for me, just sort of a fun, creative, and technical challenge. How do you tell a story like that without the voice of God narrator coming in to sort of move things along and just allow like people to tell their own story? But also, I think, because of that challenge about how do you sort of focus this giant story into a very narrow narrative, by letting it just be entirely from a few participants' point of view, that kind of solves that problem because... We're just hearing what they experienced. And the, what they experienced wasn't, you know, behind the scenes negotiating at NASA headquarters or conversations with the White House or whatnot or talking with scientists and contractors. That was out of their perspective. So it allowed for us to tell the story in a kind of novel way without having to be bogged down by all of the huge number of threads that we could possibly go down and trying to tell the whole story of what happened in, in mm. the Challenger launch. That's really interesting. Uh, another aspect of this episode was it was, I think, the one primarily in which the Reagan administration came up. 
I'm curious, did you think of it as political, this episode as political at all? Or was that kind of just incidental to the story? I wouldn't say incidental. The idea of the teacher in space program that Reagan launched, it was a big controversy at the time that I think most people have forgotten because it was clearly overshadowed by other controversies related to the Challenger launch, which we don't really get into. But yeah, I think it was really important for us, A, to get Reagan into the series. Clearly, he loomed large over the United States and the world in 1986. But he did play a crucial role in getting a teacher, Krista McAuliffe, onto that spaceship. And whether that was a good idea or not, that's, uh, you know, that's a big question to be asked. But, you know, it also allowed us to look at, I think, an aspect of what was going on in America that most people probably wouldn't think of is in, in relation to the Challenger, which was a crisis in, in education and in American public schooling, which is kind of the impetus for putting a teacher on the space shuttle. And I think most people probably don't connect those dots anymore. They think about just the space shuttle program and problems in bureaucracy and whatnot in terms of how the disaster played out. But yeah, it was, it was also a domestic problem that led to it. Yeah. So the next episode was about the excavation of Al Capone's vaults. Obviously, for this episode, you couldn't speak to Al Capone and you didn't end up speaking to Geraldo. What was it like making this episode where these two people played such big roles, but you were kind of working around them? Yeah, Capone totally stiffed us. That was one of the big disappointments of the season, but you can't always get who you want to get. And yeah, both of them kind of loom large over the episode in different ways, but also, I guess, kind of in similar ways, larger than life characters who sort of everybody's talking about. I mean, there is a way, and as a as a reporter, as a journalist, you always want to get people to, to talk to you. I don't think that having someone be absent is superior. But with the, you know, Geraldo of it all, there is a way that like him not being in the story and just having people talk about him kind of makes it more fun in a sense and builds him up into this character and you know everything in there we we have some archival audio of him both obviously on the special but also talking about it he wrote a a memoir that a lot of the information is drawn from so we have absolute confidence that everything in there is is accurate but then we also have you know the producers talking about him you know so it's just kind of like the whole event was just like built up into this entertainment spectacle and frenzy. And I think having Geraldo and Al Capone be represented in the way that they are is is really true to that, the hype, the spectacle, the conversation that was around it at the time. And it's just always fun in this series to mix up both, you know, we want to do stuff about culture, politics, music, science, sports, etc., but also episodes that are different tonally, like the stakes of this episode are different than the stakes of the no crime day one or the challenger one, for instance. But within, you know, Evan, like within this like universe, this like self-contained Al Capone's vault universe, the stakes are incredibly high. Like, is it going to be a flop? What are they going to find? And so even if it's a story that ultimately like doesn't matter (laughs) in the fate of the world that there was or wasn't anything in the vault, no, but like uh, we can tell a story that's true to that moment where the stakes do feel huge as you're listening. Yeah, and sometimes the who seem like the main characters are not always the best main characters, or that if you choose the obvious choices of the main characters, you're really privileging a certain version of a narrative that's not 
always true or not the entire truth. And yeah, so I mean, in this particular story, Geraldo, really important part of the story, sure. But he shows up months and months and months, years actually into the story. And I don't think, you know, his perspective is important, but it's not more important than, say, the son of Weird Harold, who's riding around, you know, <laughs> his tricycle or whatever it is, going into these uh, spooky houses and scavenging for material. I think the the perspective of the hired guns working on the show, literally with guns, you know, showing Geraldo how to shoot a Tommy gun, that's just as a valid and fun perspective as sort of the big name brand celebrity at the center of it. And I think you end up with a much more surprising and unexpected story when you start to find the kind of ancillary characters and elevate their voices a bit. Yeah, and I think that um, one of the things that we're always trying to do and proud of when it comes off is if we're able to tell a story in a way that it hasn't been told before. Sometimes we're able to do that because the story is just pretty unknown. But in this case, there have been oral histories done of the Al Capone's Vault special. It was something that was really chewed over at the time. And so it wasn't an event that felt <laughs> under-examined, but... The story, the through line of Harold Rubin, Weird Harold, and his son, Jules, I don't think had ever been told before. I don't think Jules had ever been interviewed on tape about this. And we could have told the story without mentioning Harold Rubin at all, right, Evan? Yeah, many people have. And we could have done a fun job of it. But the way that we get into the story with Harold and his son discovering this vault and then he ends up getting cut out of the story and his son is able to talk about that. That was both an original way in, but also it's just an interesting narrative on its own. And like Evan said, the the story of Al Capone's vault starts years before Geraldo gets there. And so I like the fact that Geraldo just kind of shows up in the middle and is like, hi, I'm Geraldo and I'm going to like loom over everything at, at this point. But, you know, he's just sort of like a hilarious interruption into the story that we've been building at that point. Yeah, and I will, I will say the downside of this and the frustrating thing for us is that we find these amazing side characters like Weird Harold or this Russian reporter we interviewed in this latest episode about Joe Mori, and we find these people who have fascinating lives, just these complete characters who deserve... 12 hours on their own to tell their own life story. And yet we're stuck because we have this other story we actually have to get to. So we can't actually spend all the time we'd love to spend telling you all of the crazy things they've done in their lives. But maybe there'll be a bonus season someday. Oh, this is good material for Plus, is that the Russian reporter, Iona Andranov, who shows up in the Man from Fifth Avenue episode, that this was not the first time we had encountered him in our research. So our first season on 1977, I think you had pitched this idea, Evan, right? Yeah, I, I'm trying to remember all the details, but there was a ta small town in West Virginia, I believe, in 1977 that the kind of this isolated community where there was one bridge, I think, that connected them to the rest of the state or something. Very poor community. And this bridge had fallen into disrepair or maybe collapsed and they couldn't get any funding to replace it. And so as kind of a publicity stunt, the mayor of this tiny town appealed to the Soviet Union, asking them to come in and fix their bridge. And uh, this one person who heard that plea was the same Russian reporter, Yona Andranov, 
who uh, went down to West Virginia and covered it and turned it into this whole media spectacle that uh, kind of embarrassed, I think, the local authorities from the state of West Virginia. And I think they ultimately got their bridge, not from the Soviet Union, but they got their bridge from whatever local uh, government funding there was. Definitely. And so this was not (laughs) a person that we were expecting to come back around. That was just a story that we thought, ah, that was kind of an interesting lark that we'll we'll never be able to tell. And there was a line in various drafts of the script that mentioned it, but that was definitely an example of a thing that like, it was fun for us to have a reference to that in there, but was not not necessary to telling this uh, particular story. So the, the references that we made to the other stories he had worked on were about like, how he claimed that the CIA was creating killer mosquitoes. That seemed more relevant vis-a-vis this episode yeah okay i think we have to get into the man from fifth avenue because what a bizarre and excellent episode i honestly i'd like to hear anything you guys have to say about it the thing that jumped out to me was how fun the scoring was for this one evan can you talk a little about how you approached producing this one and did you feel like you had a little bit more leeway with this subject matter? Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's this term that film composers use called Mickey Mousing, which is when you use music that too literally represents what's on screen in a hokey way. The idea being like you're watching a Mickey Mouse cartoon and he bonks his head and there's like a head bonking sound. (laughs) Um, It's great for cartoons, but for other kinds of filmmaking or podcast making sometimes like just having that literal sound accompanying what's going on in the story is cheesy so i try to avoid that as much as possible however joe maury's whole story about being in the ussr in 1964 and being pursued by soviet secret agents or whatever (laughs) was just such a deliciously you know crazy Cold War spy story. I mean, it's not literally a spy story, but it felt Mm. like it. And I felt like there's some leeway there to actually just put in, you know, the 60s espionage action scene music in there. So that was a bit freeing. And I hope that came across without being too much of an example of Mickey Mousing. Definitely not. I'm curious. I'm guessing that you actually tracked down the man from Fifth Avenue in its entirety. Was that tricky or? So somebody had told me in the beginning of this process that we weren't going to be able to get it because, you know, Soviet TV didn't keep track of its archives like that. But ultimately, it wasn't particularly hard to find it and wasn't a particularly interesting story about how we found it. It was just like on the internet. But tracking down the guy himself as detailed in the episode was a bit more of a challenge. And I'm really proud of this episode because... It does tell a story in a way that's it's never been told before. And, you know, the guy's in his 90s and was willing to talk to us. I think had he had never done an interview like this mm. with English language media before at like age 93. So this was kind of capturing a piece of history that might not ever have been captured. Wow. So to some degree, part of making a podcast is being able to package and promote it. 
Some of the episodes are probably easier to explain than others. This last episode is so delightful, but it also kind of defies definition. How did you make it digestible to people? Well, so Evan, his advice to me and other people on the team is, and this is good advice to anyone who's writing or producing any kind of story, is to present it like you're telling the story to somebody. And this was a story that as I was working on it, I told so many people just because I found it so fascinating. And so I think in the process of telling friends, family, annoyed people that I would meet on the street, just like working out the process of like, okay, so there's this guy. I want to tell you the whole story now. Hopefully you've already listened to it. And Evan, maybe you can speak to this around Cokeville because that was a story that was really huge and presented a number of its own kind of storytelling challenges. But I feel like in the process of telling the story, it helped me figure out how to tell it in script form. And also, like Evan and other folks on the team, the draft that I turned in is like not <laughs> the same as the as the final version. So they helped me, even if when I had thought I had a good sense of it, the final version is so much better just with the help of of the folks on the team. Yeah, I can talk about Cokeville being a similar challenge where it is, there's a lot of story there and a lot to um, wrap your head around. And in some sense, it feels like it's a simple story where you, you can just sort of say, this is a story about people taking an elementary school hostage. A classic story of people taking an elementary school hostage. The hoary, the hoary cliche. But unfortunately, it is a hoary cliche it's of, true. you know, attacks on, on students. Yeah. And that was one of the problems we found was, you know, as exciting as, as a kind of thriller it, uh, as the story is, you know, we found that, oh, a lot of people don't want to hear stories about, you know, children in peril for good reason. We've heard enough of those stories. So one of the challenges in telling this story is we found that we had to kind of give away a spoiler right at the beginning, which is to say that kids don't die in this episode. They don't die in the school. And it wasn't a thing that first occurred to me that we would have to say that, but it makes a lot of sense. People don't want to hear that kind of story. I don't really want to listen to that kind of story for pleasure. But also it's what what makes this story so unique is the fact that no one died, but also the fact that this narrative of why they didn't die evolved over the next several decades and these stories about children in the room seeing the figures of angels who who saved them. That's what makes the story interesting and unique, not just that there was, you know, a deranged man with weapons threatening people. That in itself is unfortunately not a novel story. So yeah, that was a, there was a lot of debate about how much do we preview at the very beginning? How much do we tell people of what to expect? And in a similar sense, you know, I would do the same thing where I would workshop this pitch to people, you know, at a bar, just talking to friends and, and like try to tell them like, okay, so here's this thing. There's this town in Wyoming. These kids are in school. And in the process of telling that, you find out what lines people respond to the most. And, you know, when I tell them the bomb went off, but nobody died, that's when everyone's jaw drops open and they want to know why. So we figured, you know, okay, we need to sort of lead with that because that's kind of the hook and uh, is kind of at the crux of why the story is interesting and important. Yeah, it's interesting you talk about the evolution of the story over time. One of the lines that jumped out to me in this episode is one of the, you know, adult students is talking about her experience and says, 
this, like, I'm going to tell you this part that they always cut out of interviews. Someone, you know, spoke to me and helped me get out of the school. What do you think the evolution was like that went from the initial story in which you say when they were covering it at the time, no mention of anything out of the ordinary? I mean, in the kind of magical sense to now it seems like the narrative is fully out there about the possibility of angels or some kind of intervention. Yeah, that's a very tricky question that I've tried to figure out. It's sort of unknowable. Mm. I mean, first of all, because it's 150 people or so in that room who all have some variation on the story that all conflicts in some ways, but also conforms in interesting ways. So I would say if you ask some of the angel believers who believe that they're were they were protected by divine intervention, they might say that the reason that this story about angels didn't emerge into the public consciousness until much later was because it was a private, sacred thing within the families, within the community. They didn't want to share it, whether that's because of fear of ridicule or just because they didn't feel that it needed to be shared, that it was just for them. They might say that. There's another way to look at it, which is to wonder... Was it actually something more like, you know, some initial students reported seeing something and it was their parents who then interpreted that through the lens of their belief, through their faith in the Latter-day Saint Mormon belief that viewed it as these are figures of ancestors who have died who are protecting us. That story gets passed around from parent to parent. Other students hear it. Maybe they say similar things, whether they're actually recounting things they've actually experienced or what they've heard from other students is sort of merging with their own memory and then a collective memory is being formed. These are all the sort of tricky things that's kind of impossible to say. And from our perspective of trying to tell the story, it leads to a very tricky balance of wanting to be very respectful and allow people who have had this profound experience tell their experiences and not, you know, try to poke holes in them. But at the same time, you know, we have to approach it objectively, you know, from a journalistic point of view, which is something that hasn't actually been done in this story. When the story first came out, you know, when it, when it happened in 1986, there was a lot of really good journalism about it. But like you were saying, that story about angels hadn't emerged yet. And when that story finally did emerge, which is over the course of decades after these TV shows and movies, particularly, you know, this Mormon made movie from 2015, that's really what put it back into the consciousness. And now the way it's talked about is always sort of unskeptically about a miracle having occurred. It's very much told as a, a religious story. And so in the last couple of decades, there hasn't been kind of a secular look at what actually happened. And so that's sort of what we were trying to do with this episode is kind of look back at it with that perspective for the first time. Yeah, and you, you do a great job at that and doing it kind of sensitively, but also not kind of flinching from the, the questions that I, I think the listeners will want to hear asked. And it's just so interesting. I mean, depending on what you believe happened here, but there's one version of the story that is people who have this real experience then see a fictionalized account of that real experience, and that changes their kind of memory or view of that real experience. Um, and so that's just such a fascinating phenomenon. And as we've been talking, you know, I've been thinking that if, if you were to kind of 
zoom out, what we're talking about with Cokeville is, in some sense, like competing versions of the same story. And that frame, you could also say that that's what The Man from Fifth Avenue is about. You could say that that's what Herschel the Sea Lion is about. You could say that that's what, to some extent, um, No Crime Day is about. You could definitely say that that's what Al Capone's Vault is about. And so, you know, in any story you need conflict, it's interesting that that is what the conflict seemed to center around in this season. Mm. I don't think that's what we were planning for. But, you, you know, when people have different views of the same thing, either in retrospect or at the time, that makes for interesting debate. It makes for interesting storytelling. You're going to get the people listening kind of more actively involved in the story because they want to say, I believe this person or I don't believe this person or I believe this rather than just passively listening. And so, you know, to the extent that our season was a, a success, which I think and hope it was, then I think that's a major factor. Yeah, that's a really nice note summing it up, I think. Thank you, Cleo. <laughs> um, I do want to touch quickly on next season. You've said that it will be the year 1942. Can you talk about what you're thinking about that? And I know one thing you mentioned was that talking to interview subjects is going to be a little different. This is the furthest back in time you've gone so far. So just give us a little preview. Sure. Yeah, I mean, well, we can talk about, first of all, why 1942, why that year? And it's kind of an, an obvious answer, which is that this is the first year that America was fully at war in World War II. You know, Pearl Harbor happens in December 1941, and then a few weeks later, the whole country was completely overturned in every aspect. And we're just really fascinated by all the many, many ways that the war affected everybody's lives in kind of unexpected ways. There's the expected ways, which is, you know, people being drafted and going overseas and fighting. And that also is a topic that's extremely well covered in thousands of books that are published every year. But what people don't necessarily think about as much that we're interested in is, you know, all the sort of downstream effects of that about, you know, what did that mean for people's marriages? These, you know, young people who are being shipped off to war who suddenly decide, I better get married right before that happens. Or what does this mean for, you know, the, the pop culture industry, you know, with music and film and whatnot? How does that affect how Hollywood works, how, how music works? And, and just like, literally, you can name any aspect of American society, and there's some effect that the start of World War II had on it. And we're just really interested in trying to tease those out. And then as to the, the sort of the, the challenge, like you said, 1942 is quite a long time ago. Most people that we would think to interview as the main subjects of these stories are not with us. However, not everybody. And we have interviewed some fascinating people with first-person stories about their lives in 1942. Yeah, so this is, again, sort of a, another creative and technical challenge of how do you tell a story without the benefit of having those first-person perspectives all the time. There are great, of course, historians, but also 1942 is definitely in the era of recorded sound, so we will hopefully be bringing you lots of fun archival tape that we've unearthed that we want to share with you that will help tell these stories. Thank you both so much. This was a great season, and I hope everyone enjoyed it as much as I did. Thank you. Thank you, Cleo, and thank you, Slate Plus members. You know, we say that without you, 
that work like this would not be possible. So let me just say it, not in the confines of a promotion or advertisement. Let me say it to you person to person. That is that is true. Without you, this wouldn't be possible. So we're very grateful to have supportive Slate Plus to allow us to do this work that we uh, love and hope that you love too.